Welcome to this week's podcast. My name is Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. In light of COVID-19, our regularly scheduled 9 and 11 a.m. Sunday services are currently suspended. During this time, we will live stream our 11 a.m. Sunday morning service and plan to offer other online connection points throughout the week. You can find us on Facebook or visit www.rockpoint.org for more information, including important schedule updates. I want to welcome you here. If you're uh, standing, uh, you can be seated. If you're around people that you're hosting maybe a, a, a house party at this time, then feel free to encourage one another and shake a hand or so. Um, before we get into things here today, I, I just want to do a quick presentation to you. We just recently had an outdoor event, our first outdoor event on location here, and it was the Axiom graduation. And so here are some of the Axiom graduates. If you'll take a peek at these, Jordan Cathers in the top row, Paris Gray, Caleb Smith, Olivia Simon, Abigail Brown, and then going to the bottom row, Elise Benigni, Bobby Kent, Kaylin Jones, Corinne Beal, Gabby Pryor. These and all those who have graduated from our fellowship, we just want to salute you and honor you today. And because it is Father's Day, we have something a little more special for you. And so before we dive into the word today, check this out. Dad. Dad. Hey, Dad. I want to be rich and good looking. I want to be rich and good looking. I'll need you to challenge me. I'll need you to challenge me to be rich and good works. To be rich and good works. I'll be focused on building my career at all costs. I'll need you to show me how to put my family ahead of work. I'll seek my own comfort and joy. I'll seek my own comfort and joy. I'll need you to teach me to honor God. I'll need you to teach me to honor God with my time and resources. I'll want to avoid hard conversations. I'll want to avoid hard conversations. I'll need you to show me how to speak the truth of love and love. I'll find myself wanting to please the crowd. I'll find myself wanting to please the crowd. I'll need you to remind me that I should obey God, that I should obey God. I'll look for happiness in many different places. I'll need you to show me that joy is found in following Christ. I'll want to treat girls how the world tells me to. I'll need you to show me how to honor them with all my actions. I'll find myself stuck in bad habits. I'll need you to show me the way out. I'll need you to show me the way out. I'll need you, Dad. I'll need you, Dad. I need you, Dad. I'll need you, Dad. To point me toward Christ when no one else will. To point me to Christ when no one else will. So happy Father's Day. And um, as we enter into this conversation today, um, I'm very cognizant of the fact that we have a number of people that are viewing this who you've never even been to our fellowship. You don't know even who we are. You've just come across it on the net or someone else recommended it to you. And an audience is very different than a congregation. In a congregation, we know each other and there's trust and there's an understanding that fills in when errors are made or gaps occur. With an audience, you're just viewing things. You don't know really who I am or who the congregation is or anything else other than what you're hearing through these uh, communications. So I'd ask for your grace, especially today, because on this message today that I want to share with you, um, I, I need to ask you to listen to it in its entirety. I need you to uh, listen carefully. The title today is what MLK or Martin Luther King knew that we've forgotten. 
And as we enter this, I'm going to ask you to pray with me one more time. Father, I pray right now for your Holy Spirit to address our spirits in this season of time and to empower your word beyond the capabilities of any human being, I pray right now. Guide us into your truth in Jesus' name, I pray and ask. Amen. I was a child of the 60s. I mean, literally a child during the 60s. And my father was a pastor. And um, I literally don't recall a time in any of the churches he pastored or that I've been part of where black folk were not part of that congregation. In fact, people of pretty much all kind of folk were part of the church. That's what my understanding was. Growing up in my father's house, I never saw him one time treat any person of any rank or file with disrespect. He believed in the biblical principles that all were created in the image of God, and especially within the church, that we are one people. And so with that influence upon me, I want to examine a spiritual father who I would reference Dr. King as, and, and I want to approach the conversation of what's been in place recently. When George Floyd was murdered so brutally, there was a sense of unity in this country like never before, and there was a golden moment that I fear may have escaped us at that time, maybe not. And so when marches were organized and one was going to be in our local area, my first instinct, and I shared with our elders that I think maybe I might go up and be a part of that. I want to make a stand as long as, along with so many others, I think, against the issues of racism that runs through the heart of every person. I, I didn't go up and participate because I hesitated over one thing. I didn't know who was organizing it, and I didn't know what the specific goals were. And I've learned over the years to be cautious about how I align myself and, and under what banner I march. Now, there were others in our congregation that did be part of that, and, and I understand what their heart was. It was the same heart intent that I had. It was the same desire to, to take a stand, to make a, a voice known uh, against some of the injustices that we've seen. So I did not march, but I did go up and I observed, and as I was there, I observed people holding uh, uh, banners that said, uh, in short language, F the police, or um, ALCAB, all, all, all cops are, forgive the language, bastards. And I don't hold to those perspectives. I think that if you have 10 or 100 or even 10,000 of one particular people group that misbehaves and has twisted values, that you do not judge an entire people group by that. That, to me, would be prejudging or prejudicial. I speak briefly to um, the police officers I know of our congregation. I don't know all officers, and not all my experiences with officers have been particularly uh, positive. But I know the officers in our congregation, and I know that to a person, they are men and women of integrity who care deeply about this community who recognize the depravity of man and the need to have people who will stand in the gap for that. And for those of you who are children of those officers, right now I'd speak particularly to you. As a kid growing up, I saw my father in a position of authority as a pastor, and I don't know how many times I would see him um, 
attacked or maligned for his position as being a person in authority. And my children have seen, seen the same thing now with me over the years. Having the role that your parents have is an extremely difficult one. And you as children watching them during this time is difficult. And so I want to encourage you to realize that your parents are striving to do something to change the society for the better. Even as I say that, I'm fully aware and shared, had a friend shared recently with me how uh, they were pulled out of a police car at one time before their children or out of a, their own driving, their own car, um, in front of their own children for no reason whatsoever. And the sense of humiliation that comes over a man as that's done in front of his children is a terrible thing to have happen. One of the big reasons why I could not be involved in some of the current things is because the primary organizing group is something called Black Lives Matter. Now, let's be clear, black lives do matter. And there's nothing untoward to referencing that, particularly now. It doesn't exclude anyone else in the process. It's a recognition that right now there's something critical happening and that there's a particular need of emphasis upon those um, who are black within our communities. One friend uh, put it this way. It's kind of like uh, you showing up at my wife's funeral and, and in the process of everyone sharing things, you said, yeah, you know, Renee was pretty cool, but don't really all wives matter? And let's talk about Mildred and let's talk about Fred, Frederica or whatever. It, it's like, no, that would be inappropriate right now. There's a specific focus. And so I think we could all agree and should be able to agree that, that black lives matter because of the fact that, that every life, every person made in the image of God matters. Not by itself, but it's because of that. But the movement, entire Black Lives Matter, is a whole other issue. And I had explored this when it first came out and had understanding of it, but I, I thought there had been some changes, so I've reviewed it again. And one of the things I'd encourage you is to do research on anything, including what I say here today. Sean McDowell was told by his father, Josh McDowell, at one point in time when he was struggling with faith and different issues, uh, his father told him, follow truth wherever it leads. Follow truth wherever it leads. Guard your heart with your mind and not your mind with your heart. Guard your heart with your mind, not your mind with your heart. And so I reviewed again, and what I thought had been changed, in fact, has not only not changed, it's gotten far more intense. And I would encourage you to check out the Black Lives Matter website, to check out the Movement for Black Lives, which is the umbrella organization, to see what they stand for and what they believe in. One of the things that's driving them and the conversation today is postmodernism. And postmodernism um, offers a thought that neither revelation nor reason uh, can give us the story of reality, that there is no really universal or, or discernible story of reality. Truth is a social construct in their mind. Even ones like male and female is a social construct. Black Lives Matter is deeply supportive and heavily promoting homosexuality and transgenderism, something that as a Christian I can respect and, and can um, honor as individuals, but not as an agenda. They completely ignore uh, fatherhood. On their site of Black Lives Matter, found, it says, we disrupt 
the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each of us as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. And so there's a rejection, really, of the role of the father, and their definition of, fa- of family is something radically different. The root of this is Marxism, and it's something that's rooted in that, in something referred to as a critical race theory. In critical race theory, um, the idea is that race is not biological or, or genuine, but it's a social construct, and it's an issue of the oppressed and the powerless, and the need is to radically change those structures. Um, it came out of the legal realm, and Richard Allen Posner, who is an American jurist and economist, economist who was a United States Circuit judge, the United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit in Chicago from 81 to 2017. He's also a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago Law School. He's a leading figure in the field of law and economics. He's identified by the Journal of Legal Studies as the most cited legal scholar of the 20th century. He's widely considered to be one of the most influential legal scholars in the United States. And he, in part, criticizes CRT, or critical race theory, on a number of grounds, such as the scholar's reliance on narrative and storytelling its critique of uh, objectivity. He labeled critical race theorists and postmodernists, which together, as, quote, the lunatic core of radical legal egalitarianism, unquote. He said, what is most arresting about critical race theory is that it turns its back on the Western tradition of rational inquiry for swearing analysis for narrative. Rather than marshal logical arguments and empirical data, critical race theorists tell stories fictional, science fictional, quasi-fictional, autobiographical, anecdotal, designed to expose the pervasive and debilitating racism of America today. By repudiating reasoned argumentation, argumentation, um, they basically raise inseparable boundaries to mutual understanding. There is really no way in that to have a, a, a decent or reasonable conversation in the process. There's a whole string of other things that they support. You've heard mostly the defund the police, but there's other things behind that. And now it looks a little bit like um, I'm I'm tearing down an organization. Uh, I was raised in the scriptures, and, and when we look at the scriptures, and part of what motivated me to want to go up and be a part of what was happening on our, our pastor's scriptures, and we've interrupted our study in Psalms, in case you haven't understood that yet, um, for this time. We'll continue again next week. But in the Psalms itself, Psalm 99, verse 4, it says, The king in his might loves justice. Speaking about God, loves justice. You've established equity. In Psalm 89, 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. The very foundation, steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. In Psalm 106, verse 3, it says, Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17 we're, we're told to learn to do right, to seek justice and defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Jesus challenges the Pharisee of his time in Luke chapter 11, verse 42. Woe to you, Pharisees. In other words, you're in trouble because you give God a tenth of your mint and all kinds of herbs. In other words, you tithe, which is fine. But he says you neglect justice. And the love of God. He equates the love of God and ties that in with God's justice. And he says you should have practiced the latter, tithe, do those other things without leaving the former undone. 
We're told in Romans chapter 12, verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And so at this point in time, those of you who have been concerned that I'm a raging liberal have now been confirmed that I'm a raging justice warrior liberal, and that's not true. I'm a scripture-driven, Bible-believing Christian. And it's out of that that I draw my, not just experiences, but my understanding of what's happening in the world around me and how to address things around me. I believe in the beauty of diversity and ethnicity. I always ask. I want to learn. I'm interested in views different than mine. Now we're being told to thrust those views out without any filter or consideration that silence is violence, and it can be in certain circumstances and situations, absolutely, but sometimes silence can be thoughtful. Sometimes it can be unwilling to be rushed to a place of shallow judgment, Silence can be the space needed for true transformation to take place and, and to be able to offer something substantial to the conversation. We're told in Ephesians chapter 4.29, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit to those who listen. It sounds like you just tore out on a whole group here. No, all I've done is share what they say they stand for. And if you look at it, you realize that they believe um, not in transformation as we do, but in a radical realignment of power, and not just locally, but globally. That their issues of gender, their issues of society as a whole are quite different, and you need to research that for yourself. If power is in fact the final arbiter of human affairs, then it is going to be abused. And just changing those who are in power is not going to resolve the issue. It'll only add to more division and more strife. If that power becomes the final arbiter of human affairs, then not only will it be abused, but life is reduced, as one writer puts it, to nothing more than a struggle for domination. In this Hobbesian, a philosopher of days past, who viewed the world as pretty brutish and ugly and only about power, in this Hobbesian world of perpetual warfare, there is no prospect for peace or justice, much less um, for reconciliation. We're not to let unwholesome talk come out in a way that's going to add more heat to the issue, but we do need to speak to the issues after thoughtful consideration, and I have waited weeks on this. James chapter 1, verse 19 says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen. We've been told that we have to thrust ourselves into the conversation, and you don't need to do that. We need to be quick to listen first. The first duty of love, Paul Tiller says, is to listen. Don't assume that you understand. Don't assume that you know an individual's story. Slow to speak slow to become angry. Jesus, at one point in time, engages a centurion. A centurion would have been somebody that would have been, in essence, the police force of that time. He would have been uh, a part of a very oppressive element for the Jewish people. In Luke chapter 7, 
The centurion heard of Jesus. He sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they, meaning the Jews who were under the suppression, pleaded earnestly with them, said, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. There was something unique about this centurion that he wasn't like all the others. He had a belief in God and he had a concern for the people that he was supposed to be an authority over. Jesus' experiences with this man, this centurion, this officer, is such that he's amazed at him and turns to the crowd following and says, I tell you, I've not found such great faith even in Israel. Having said that, though, there were also multiple times where Jesus engaged with people who were even more oppressed than his people were, where there were stark racial, old racial hatreds the group called the Samaritans. And at one point in time, he sits at a well and he engages a woman, doubly damned in society of of Jewish eyes as both being a woman and a Samaritan. And he engages her and and, and that entire village. Another time, one of his main stories, one is that repeated, one of probably the top two or three that he would have ever shared was about a good Samaritan, something that was perceived in Jewish eyes to be a complete misnomer. There could never be a good Samaritan, but he lifted that up. I believe that black lives matter. I believe they matter deeply to God. I believe any people that are operating under any level of oppression or fear matter deeply to God. That injustice is something that needs to be looked at and examined, but not justice as defined for me by those who I cannot trust, but that which is defined by Scripture. That my mind and my heart that my mind needs to be the guardian of that. Blind conformity takes away open and real discussion that can, real to, that can lead to real and genuine change. As I look at Black Lives Matter and critical race theory and the Marxist underpinnings of that that would unravel society that is revolutionary at its core and not reforming, I find within it no place for forgiveness, no avenue for redemption, no guidelines for reconciliation. It's strictly about power. And if power is all there is, then there's this wheel of oppressor and oppressed that continues to just change the players out, but the wheel rolls on and crushes people and creates dissension. You say that you don't agree with it, though, and you don't agree with them. Your values are different. You're marching for different reasons. But you need to understand that the leaders under this banner are even now the ones that are doing the negotiations with the leaders in the communities in which the marches are being held. You are not part of that conversation. Their values and their agendas are driving that. So what do we do in this? Do we stand down and do we let issues continue on as they've always been? No. I would say very strongly, no. This conversation is what does Martin Luther King Jr. know that we've forgotten? Martin Luther King Jr. 
was someone who encountered a, a true systemic racism of massive proportions that had gone back for generations and had been established by law. And somehow through his methods and his approaches, in a matter of a few short years, overturned all of that. He would have grown up in a time of deep oppression, of an obvious racism, when some of these same things that are churning today of philosophies were very much present in the black power movement of the time. The sense of disenfranchisement must have been intense. He would have been aware of all of those political stirrings, and yet he forsook all of those and took a different path. He would have read, I'm sure, Langston Hughes' incredible poem, Let America Be America Again. And it would have resonated with him. Langston Hughes, this black author and poet, who in part said, let America be America again. Let it be the dream it used to be. Let it be the pioneer on the plane, seeking a home where he himself is free. And then in parentheses, America never was America to me. Let America be the dream, the dreamer's dream. Let it be that great strong land of love where never kings connive nor tyrants scheme that any man be crushed by one above. In parentheses, it never was America to me. Oh, let my land be a land where liberty is crowned with no false patriotic wreath or quick shallow comments, I would put in parentheses. But opportunity is real and life is free. Equality is in the air we breathe. He continued to write at one point, yet I am the one who dreamt our basic dream in the old world while still a surf of kings who dreamt the dream so strong, so brave, so true that even yet it's mighty daring sings. And every brick and stone and every furrow turn that's made America the land it has become. Oh, I'm the man, Langston writes, who sailed those early seas in search of what I meant to be my home. For I'm the one who left dark Ireland's shore and Poland's plain and England's grassy lee and torn from black Africa's strand I came to build a, quote, homeland of the free. Oh, yes, say it plain. America never was America to me, and yet I swear this oath, America will be. King would have read poems like that, that had to resonate and stir within his own very heart, but it stirred not the flames of revolution, but the steely-eyed determination of reformation. I won't go into the details right now, but Martin Luther King wasn't born Martin Luther King. He was born Michael King, Jr., but his father had an experience of a spiritual nature and he changed his name to Martin Luther. And in turn, his son had his name as changed as well. The name of Martin Luther King Jr., Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the name of a reformer, not a revolutionary. A person of letters and a person who was determined to see a change. And he had a fourfold plan as to how he would approach anything that he was doing. He wanted America to live up to its promise. And so here was his methodology. First, in anything he would do, he wanted to determine the facts. 
Do your research. Study the statistics. Don't accept everything being told to you or all the stories that are shared from any of the sides that are part of it. Dig in. Find out what's behind an organization. What's motivating a person or a people group. Examine the facts. And so once he examined the facts and found that a racist act or system did exist, he didn't then move into action. Instead, he engaged those individuals in negotiation. Do you see what's happening? Are you willing to change that? And upon having that refused, if it was in fact refused, they would go to the next level. And this one might surprise you because it wasn't then direct action. The next action he had in his plan after determining the facts and doing the research, after negotiation with those involved, was to self-purify. King writes, mindful of the difficulties involved, we decide to undertake a process of self-purification. He later said, nonviolence demands that the means we use must be as pure as the ends we seek. It was a spiritual operation. How does one self-purify? King says civil rights activists had to ensure they could accept the blows without retaliating. More importantly, King stresses neighbor love as the basis for righteous indignation. He talked about all sorts of things with this, but his admonition didn't fall into hate. He said hatred is evil, hatred is destructive, and hatred is, as King well knew, knew, counterproductive to justice. Self-purification is the process in which one cleanses the ugliness within himself before he tries to go out and change the world, in this case, through the civil rights movement of the 60s. One needs to be able to fight, he said, his inner natural urge to give up or to retaliate before he can fight an unjust society. One, determine the facts. Two, negotiate if possible. Three, self-purify. Cleanse yourself. Worship, prayer, scripture. And then the final one was direct action. Always peaceful. Always peaceful. This gave him the moral authority and having very clear goals to be able to achieve the ends. The goals today are very muddy and not clear. The root methodology and philosophy is not only not biblical, it is contrary to biblical truth. The movement today, as centered at least through Black Lives Matter, is a movement that is divorced from any institutional connection to the African-American church and to Martin Luther King, who they dismiss as not having gone far enough. It is rejectionist and revolutionary, not reformist. So does this mean that we ignore what has taken place around us? Does this mean that we don't listen to the cries for justice and the need for reformation? No. What it means, though, is that we have to use different methods, that we have to be careful under what banners we march. Planned Parenthood may do other things of a medical nature, and maybe they'll march for, march for medical uh, um, reformation, but I can never march under that banner because a centerpiece of what they do is to abort children, which also Black Lives Matter is for. So do black lives matter? Absolutely. Without a doubt. Is that a concern in our time period? Yes, it is. 
But what banner we march under is absolutely critical. The philosophies and ideas that drive what we do will shape the world that we end up with. And if not done in a way that is morally accurate and biblically true, will only create more conflict and division. There is something that happened recently. In fact, yesterday. Yesterday, hundreds of churches, thousands of Christians protested racism and they called for reforms in what was referred to as a march on Atlanta. The Juneteenth March in Atlanta was organized by an organization called the One Race Movement. And it's a Christian coalition that exists, quote, to displace the spirit of racism and release a movement of racial reconciliation across Atlanta, the Southeast, and the nation. It was founded by Bishop, in part, Garland Hunt, a black man from Atlanta who grew up in Atlanta, at one time witnessed the, the funeral progression procession of Dr. King. He grew up steeped in black militancy, but then he says how he came to a relationship to God. And as he became born again, he said, my attitude began to change. He said, the hearts and minds of Americans have to be renewed in the area of race, just like my mind and heart were if we're to achieve racial harmony in this country. And you can read his biography if you'll check into um, One Race Movement. Bishop Garland Hunt discipled by another icon of the 1960s civil rights movement, Dr. John Perkins, a man that I've met and had conversation with, and that we have mutual friends. And so they have formed something unique, and I won't go into the whole history of it. They started about four years ago or so after the the white supremacist actions in Charleston. But there's something incredible happening with this movement. There's people I know that are part of this movement, an ex-roommate of mine from college, married to an ex-girlfriend of mine. Long story, we don't need to get into that right now. But they're part of this. 400 churches are formally part of this. Here's just part of their guidelines and what they stand for. One, reconciliation and revival are the solution. They said, through prayer and fasting, relationship and collaboration, one race exists to displace the spirit of racism and release a moment of a movement of Racial reconciliation, as I said, across Atlanta, the Southeast of the nation. God desires a young adult movement that will counter the tide of racial division in our city and nation. And he quotes Acts 17.26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. They believe in the Imago Dei that we talked about two weeks ago, the image of God in man. We believe all people are made in the image and likeness of God. In all of creation, there's only one entity, the human race that is created in the image of God. As image bearers of the divine, each human being is endowed with inestimable worth and value. Therefore, we reject and renounce any ideology that promotes a culture or gender as superior to another. They go on to say oneness in Christ. We believe that our identity as brothers and sisters united together in Christ across cultures, genders, and denominations as expressed in the word of God supersedes any public private, or personal ideology, race, gender, religion, political affiliation, culture, or creed. Therefore, we reject and renounce any philosophy that exalts any human affiliation, any affiliation of humanness above our shared oneness and identity in Christ. Bishop Garland says this is his number one identity. Those of us who are gathered in this fellowship 
black, white, brown, different races, different nationalities have all come together and said we have first and foremost an identity in Christ. We believe Ephesians chapter 2 verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus who once you were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace who has made the two groups, and here talking about Jews and Gentiles, but he's talking about race as a whole has made the two groups one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. We are told as Christians that we have the spirit of reconciliation, not of violence, not of power, but of God's presence, of his grace and forgiveness. The one race movement has four guidelines. Interesting enough, one, they're rooted in prayer. Two is they believe in authentic relationships, deep relationships, growing through education and critical conversations, and then finally then acting out biblical justice. And so these people gathered yesterday and they gathered around the, the new chief of police of Atlanta and prayed over him. And Garland Hunt said this, Bishop Hunt, we told him that we want to support him even though we don't like bad law enforcement. Who does? But overall, they still need our prayers. very possible that at this point in the conversation I've managed to convince you that I'm a raging liberal or a completely reactionary conservative. I reject either of those titles. I have no political ambitions or any real true affiliations. To me, the scripture is to be the guideline for how we're to operate in its truth, and it's the only way to get out of the situations that we're in. I was raised in the Pentecost tradition as my father and my grandfather before me. In that tradition of Christianity, it, it draws its center point from what was called Pentecost Sunday when the believers were gathered in one room in Jerusalem and the Spirit of God came upon them and as the Holy Spirit came upon them, they began to speak in other tongues and, and something was birthed and they began to spill out into the streets and thousands of people gathered from the festivals from all around the world heard all their own languages spoken and there was a moment of unity that, that came in that that defied Babel and defied the Tower of Babel and all that was meant in that place and time and the church came together as one people in one place. There was an outpouring called Azusa Street out in California around the turn of the last century and in that time of Pentecostal expression, blacks and whites and people from all different stations of life came together as one. There was something that drew them in Five years ago, in 2015, I spoke to our congregation and I redefined our vision gathering at that point in time as something that we called 2020 from that point on, wanting to have 2020 vision and clarity, but also looking to the year 2020, having no idea that we'd be facing a combination of political division, pandemic, and racial and urban disorder. And one of the centerpieces of that conversation five years ago was our desire to increasingly be the church at Antioch, the place where people were first called Christians. 
a place again that cut across all racial lines, that cut across all social lines, to be that church. I still believe in that church. In speaking to our congregation now, I'm asking you, do not get caught up with those things that would divide today. Do your research. Dig deep. Don't let your heart override your mind. Let your mind be the guard to that. Look into history. Examine what the philosophies are that are driving things and what banners you stand under. Martin Luther King Jr. was also, like me, a pastor, a son of a pastor, the grandson of a pastor. He was a believer steeped in the tradition of the Christian faith. His approach was nonviolent. It asked for reformation and called to um, um, truths that were unalterable throughout time that eventually overwhelmed a system that was massive at its time. And he was successful and brought reconciliation, not revolution. What is it that Martin Luther King Jr. knew that we've forgotten? He knew that you need reconciliation, not revolution. That you need to test the spirit of what is driving a movement and that it should be moved in the Holy Spirit and one of brotherhood, unity, not division. What did Martin Luther King know that we have forgotten today? Is that you cannot legislate, you cannot intimidate internal transformation. Racism will still insinuate itself in 10,000 tendrils of disgusting, dismissive, dehumanizing obscenity. You cannot legislate, intimidate internal transformation. And yet still with his approach, he dismantled a truly systemic racism of massive and ingrained proportion. What did Martin Luther King Jr. know that we forgot? He appealed to the power and promise of Scripture, to the ultimate brotherhood of all mankind. He believed deeply that Jesus had broken the wheel of domination and injustice that broke one group one year and broke another group the next century. They had come to break the cycle of oppression and to perpetuate it. Martin Luther King Jr., Dr. King, knew the power of the gospel to truly change hearts and minds and change systems. Let me rephrase this. And changed hearts and minds change systems, not the other way around. He knew the power of the gospel to truly change our hearts and our minds and changed hearts and changed minds change systems, not the other way around. He knew at its core that there's only one Lord, that there is one faith, that there is one baptism, but more importantly, he knew what we seem to have forgotten. But there is one race. There is one blood. And that we are all part of that. And until that is understood, until that is grasped and and fully known until revival sweeps through this country, 
until there's a great awakening. One pundit recently said, seeing all the disruption, that there's been a great awakening. That phrase used to mean a revelation from God that transformed hearts and minds, but in this case was being referenced in political terms. That will not solve it until there's a great awakening of the hearts and minds of men and women that realize that we are one in Christ. The cycle of oppression and injustice will continue on. They'll just be different names on the doors. We are a fellowship that is imperfect. We do not yet understand everyone's story, but we are listening. We are not rushing around. We are not making shallow statements from which we must later apologize or, or, or deter from or, or not actually really mean, but have just been intimidated into saying we are listening. We are engaged actively in our community and have been for years. I ask you this morning, if you're part of our congregation, to recognize this and think carefully. Do your research. Purify yourself and align yourself with philosophical underpinnings and and, and things rooted in the gospel. And if you're part of the audience, to know that this is who we are and that you're welcome to join us. That maybe all together, that maybe once again, God's Holy Spirit would come upon us and those tongues of fire that once lit up a, a room depressed and in darkness of that 120 would once again enliven our hearts and minds and transform this nation. It's to that end that we seek, God, come with your fire, come with your Holy Spirit. As we test the spirits around us, as we test our own spirit, Lord, let us align with your Holy Spirit that we might see transformation as I recall what my father said over many and many years and would close and finish many and many a message with, that we worship God in spirit, your Holy Spirit, none other, and in truth, in actual truth. And in that spirit, we come before you on this Father's Day, O oh God, our Father, to worship you in spirit and in truth. Sports commentator and uh, former NFL player Emmanuel Acco said um, public efforts, in his public efforts, uh, one of them is uncomfortable conversations with a black man. In 2018, though, he wrote this. He's a Christian and uh, has been involved in a lot of missions work. And after his family's annual mission trip to Nigeria, he said this, quote, everyone wants to be the Black Panther until it's time to actually save lives in Africa. My family's annual mission trip to Nigeria complete. We treat over 1,800 patients, performed 162 surgeries, and tried to love like Jesus does. Join us in what we're doing. Maybe there is a place for you to march, in which case check what banner you're under. In Scripture, we're told that, that the banner of God is love, and that's the one we're to operate under. Check the banner. Check the background. Check the spirit of what's going on in place. Check your facts. See if negotiations taken place. Be self-purifying. And then maybe there's a time to act, but also join with us. We've already been involved for years. And it's easy to tweet something or post something, 
but coming down and, and being part of a community where we're teaching a second grade child or a third grade child how to read, knowing that statistically that dramatically changes the trajectory of their life. Be a part of the dozens of our people that are doing that already. Mentor a kid. Be a part of ceasefire that we're engaged in, in an end of violence in Detroit. Listen actively. Be engaged. But come from a place where the Spirit of God unifies us. And, and please, church, I beg you, do not let this or the politics of the time or the pandemic as to whether you wear a mask or don't wear one, don't let any of that stuff divide us. Let us stay unified and let's keep talking and let's keep walking. Father, I thank you right now and I ask, Father, two really distinct things. I ask, Father, that you would be with um, those officers of the law who recognize the depravity of all men and act to guard us against that, that you would encourage them and their families today, those honest guardians, that you'd weed out those who are not, but these honest guardians encourage and keep them safe. I pray also, Lord, right now for every person, because I'm a man and it's Father's Day, I pray specifically for every father, every father, but particularly every black father who ever lost their dignity by an authoritarian act in front of their children through no guilt of their own, but simply through the blindness and the arrogance of misappropriated power. God, I pray your grace and I pray your provision and healing, not just for them, but for our entire land. Guide us in these things, we pray, as we go forth this Father's Day.